Now it is a privilege to be here. We do appreciate the invitation from the Assembly at Lurgan to give help over the conference period and it's good too to be in fellowship with our dear brethren here and we trust that the Lord will give help over these few days of conference. Now it falls to me to open up Romans 13 this afternoon so we'll read the chapter through, the Epistle to the Romans, chapter 13. It's not a long section, just 14 verses so we should get through in good time. Romans chapter 13 and reading at verse 1. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation, judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their Jews, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honour to whom honour. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, and if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, Thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armour of light. Let us walk honestly, as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfil the lusts thereof. Now that is our reading, and we trust that the Lord will graciously bless the reading of Holy Scripture and our discussion about it today. Now, those of you who know me know that when it comes to a Bible reading, I don't take a lengthy time to give an introduction. I feel that the more I say, the more I'm taking away from what you want to say when it comes to the discussion period. But when we talked about these chapters, it was suggested that possibly I would put this on the first occasion we're together, I would put these chapters within the framework of the epistle to the Romans just to see how the whole thing works out. I think it's evident that there were a number of assemblies at Rome you would see, for example, in chapter 16, that there was an assembly in the home of Aquila and Priscilla. And then you discover there's a man called Asyncritus. I don't know whether that's the way you pronounce his name here in Northern Ireland. Maybe Asyncritus, but I've always called him Asyncritus. But, but there he is, and there are, there are others named with him. 
and the brethren which are with them. So likely that was another assembly. And then there's a man called Philologus, and uh, there are other names along with his, and the saints which are with them. So very likely there were these assemblies scattered throughout the, the city, the great metropolis of Rome. And Paul's writing to them. It is believed that he was writing from Corinth. Now, as far as I can see, there was only one assembly at Corinth. The Church of God, which is at Corinth, a single entity there at Corinth. So he's writing from Corinth to Rome. He'd never been to Rome. I think that's evident from what he has to say. But he had a great ambition to preach the gospel at Rome. I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. And we'll be discovering in our studies that he had an ambition to get right to the west, to Spain. And he intended to use Rome as a kind of staging post en route to Spain. Whether that came about is doubtful. He did arrive in Rome eventually as a prisoner and God used him to see others saved there at Rome. So he's writing to them. And he's writing about the gospel mainly. And I suppose a time-honoured way of dividing up the epistle is to say that in chapters 1 to 8 we have the doctrinal section, and I'll elaborate that just in a moment. And then in chapters 9 to 11 we have the dispensational section, and then the little passages that we'll be looking at, we have the practical section of the epistle, 12 to 16. Some people like it all alliterated, so we've got doctrine, we've got the dispensation, and then the duty section, if you want to call it that, at the end of the epistle. So, in the first little section, the section dealing with doctrinal issues, Paul has two main themes before his mind, connected with the gospel, of course. In chapter 1 through to 5.11, the thought is that of our sins and justification our sins, the evil deeds of our lives, and how those who have been declared guilty can now be declared righteous in the sight of God. It's our sins and justification. I'm not going to go off at tangents to speak about that, or the time will just run away with us. But then from verse 12 of chapter 5 to the end of chapter 8, there's the idea of sin. Not our sins, but sin. Sin is a dominating master. Sin is a tyrant in human lives. And he's going, to speak about our, he's going to speak about sin and sanctification. So in the first section, it's our sins and justification. In the second little section, it's sin and our sanctification. That is, how those who've been cleared of guilt can now have the ability to live holy lives. I love Charles Wesley's old hymn. Oh, for a thousand tongues. Uh, I never knew whether he wished he had a thousand tongues himself or whether he was looking for a thousand tongue choir to sing about it. Oh, for a thousand tongues. And he gets to this point in that little hymn. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. So, right over the first doctrinal area of Romans, cancelled sin. And then the second part, how he breaks the power of cancelled sin and how we can eman be emancipated from the tyranny of evil in our lives. So the doctrinal section, 1 to 8. And then the dispensational section, 9, 10 and 11. Now what I'm going to say uh, I think holds good, but it's not absolutely watertight. I'm just making that clear. In chapter 9, it's Israel in the past. In chapter 10, it's Israel in the present. 
and he shows that they are blessed presently on the same principle as which Gentiles are blessed. The same Lord over all is rich unto all who call upon him, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So it's Israel in the present in chapter 10. And then in chapter 11, Israel in the future. And he does show that there is a future for Israel. That is crucial in the day and age in which we live. For so many of you young people, you're on to internet sites, reformed theology, and all the rest, and they'll tell you, no future for Israel, no literal millennium, and so on. Romans 11 teaches clearly that there is a future for Israel. And there's a crucial verse there, right in the the heart of the chapter. Blindness in part hath happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So yes, a judicial blindness afflicts them presently, but it's not total, it's in part. And Paul has cited himself as an example of a Jew who'd been saved by the grace of God. And it's not only not total, it's not permanent. It is until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So the day will come when the blindness will be lifted and there will be a national salvation for Israel ultimately. So we call that section 9, 10 and 11 the dispensational section. But then coming to chapter 12, we have the duty section, the practical section of the epistle. And in chapters 12 and 13, it is Christian responsibilities. In 14 to 16, Christian relationships. I call it Christian responsibilities because right at the head, there's a responsibility to God. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. And then he comes on to your responsibility to the assembly. There was a burden in prayer about gift. And the need for every believer to exercise the spiritual gift that God has given them. Now, that is embedded in the heart of Romans chapter 12. You're all gifted. And you have a responsibility to exercise that gift in the interest of the assembly of which you form a part. So it's your responsibility to God. Your responsibility to the assembly. And then your responsibility to believers in general. Owe no man anything but to love one another. Uh, he, he comes on to that, or rather, let love be without dissimulation. That other verse comes in our passage today. Let love be without hypocrisy. And he's showing that believers ought to have a heart of affection for their fellow believers. And then he'll come on to deal with our responsibility to people out there. Even those who are hostile to us. And you won't have a vengeful spirit. You won't want to pay back in kind. You'll leave it with the Lord. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. And then coming to our passage today, it's our responsibility to the state. Let every soul be subject to the higher power. So Christian responsibilities to God. And over that little phrase, over that little section at the beginning of chapter 12, you could write a phrase from the chapter, think soberly. If you think soberly, you will adjust your thinking to the the mercies of God. And the logical response to the mercies of God is, you present your bodies a living sacrifice. I think that's where our brethren took us last evening. 
They took us to Calvary. I tell you, friends, Calvary ought to make an impact on our lives. And if we're thinking soberly, then the logical response to the message of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. If you're thinking soberly, then it will affect your attitude to the world. Because you, you won't be conformed to this world, but you'll be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. Thinking soberly will impact on your attitude to the world. And then, in its strictest context, thinking soberly will mean, well, I'm gifted, but uh, I'll rightly appraise my gift. I won't think myself to be better than I really am. I'll think soberly, and I'll exercise my spiritual gift under the direction of God, and without any sense of self-aggrandizement or self-promotion. Think soberly. And then as you go down chapter 12, you could place another little phrase over it. Love tenderly. I'm quoting the revised version of verse number 10 of chapter 12. The word tenderly is well. In love of the brethren be tenderly affectioned. Love tenderly. And if we are loving tenderly, then we will have a heart of affection for those who are, despite their irritations and their idiosyncrasies and all the rest of it, love tenderly. And then as you come down the chapter again, you discover there's another little phrase, and it is, live peaceably. Live peaceably with all men, even those who are harassing you, persecuting you, would want to confiscate your goods as it was in, in New Testament times. Live peaceably with all men, as much as in you lies. The little phrase that might govern what we're looking at today is a phrase that we have down at the end of our chapter, walk honestly. And if we're walking honestly, that will affect our attitude to the state. Uh, and it will affect our attitude to society in general. Oh, no man anything but to love one another. And so there are these little phrases, a verb with an adverb, that just seems to summarize the whole of these two chapters, 12 and 13, Christian responsibilities. But then I said 14 to 16, Christian relationships, and it's the relationship between the weak and the strong, and our dear brother will explain that to us when we come to chapter 14, and then you discover that that little section ends further down, 15, and, well, I'd rather, I'll have to call one David Mack and the other David G. Uh, the last time I was here, David W. was here as well. David West, it was very, very confusing. If, if, you know, if you take statistics, that would have meant three out of four preachers are called David. But, you know, you can ignore statistics at time. But at any rate, we've got David uh, Mack, and he's going to open up chapter 14 for us. But when we come to David W.'s, <laughs> David G's I'm getting myself confused when you come to David G's little section he's got an excursus to deal with the gospel but then it comes back to Christian relationships again and you discover at the end of chapter 15 that, that Gentile believers have a responsibility to their Jewish brethren 
And he's showing that, yes, I'm carrying a gift for them because there has to be this tender affection. We've benefited through the Jews. It's now our responsibility to meet their material needs. So you're still in the section dealing with Christian relationships. And then chapter 16, and uh, her brother Stephen will deal with that on Monday, God willing. And you've got all the names, very interesting people that we have right down chapter 16. Now as far as our chapter, I'm going to divide it very, very briefly. Could I say that in verses 1 to 7, written over it, you could place the words, a duty. We have a duty. And we have to be subject to the higher powers. In two ways. Number one, to be submissive. Number two, to be supportive. In the sense that you pay your taxes. I know you have no option at times. When it comes to VAT... You've no option. You've got to pay it. It's such and such an amount plus VAT. There was a, a man in Belfast, uh, and he, he was uh, a funeral director, and he was getting details, you know, of a notice for the Belfast Telegraph, uh, and the widow said, how much would that be? He says, it's so much plus VAT. She says, I'm not wanting VAT I would rather have safe in the arms of Jesus or something like that. <laughs> but in any way, you, you've, got to, you've got to have the VAT on. Anyway, you're paying it whether you like it or not, but then, then, there are some instances where you could, you could put cash in your hip pocket. And he's showing that we have a responsibility to support government by paying our taxes. Now I know, I know that sometimes you men who are self-employed and you're maybe writing out a cheque twice a year and the tears are dropping onto the cheque as you're writing it. I know, but at the same time, we have a responsibility to pay the taxes. So, he's speaking about our duty to the state to be submissive, first of all, and to be supportive. We'll go through the verses. And then from verse 8 to 10, the idea is that of a debt. Owe no man anything but to love one another. Now, I think there could be quite a bit of discussion there. Uh, Our dear brethren will want to know, is it legitimate to take out a loan for this or that, a mortgage or or whatever? And uh, they, they might think, well, in light of this verse, is that legitimate? You know, we'll have to think about that. But it is a debt to love. This is the positive. To love one another, he say. And so he goes on to show that loving one another comes under the umbrella of loving your neighbor as yourself and that embraces every one of the commandments. And then down at the end of the chapter, 11 to 14, there's a danger. A danger that we could drift into a spiritual stupor. And so he's saying, look, you really must be aware of last day conditions, knowing the time. That will keep you from drifting into the spiritual stupor. And you really must be awake to moral dangers. It's high time to awake out of sleep. And you really must be attired with the right garments. You'll put off works of darkness. You'll put on the armor of light and preeminently 
you'll put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. So, I've taken longer than what I intended. I'm sorry about that. But we'll come now to the discussion. And I think it was indicated that we want to hear our dear brethren from the floor. We don't want this to be a panel discussion. And it would be good just to hear as many of our dear brethren as are able. And I think the usual rules apply. You've got to stand up, I think, if you're able. And then speak up. That's the big thing. Because, you know, there are peripheral areas of the hall and everybody wants to hear your contribution so speak up as best as you can so it's maybe stand up and speak up and then well I won't mention the thing, I'll, <laughs> if you can if you can make that as crisp as possible when you're making your contributions then I'll try to be crisp in responding to you now just to launch us into these first seven verses Possibly we could say that in verses 1 and 2 we have the appointment of government. That is, the government is appointed by God. The powers that be are ordained of God. And then from verses 3 to 5 we have the function of government. And the function of government, of course, is to maintain law and order. That's the big thrust of these verses. Their function is to maintain law and order. And then verses 6 to 7, the support of government. And he's showing that we have a duty to support government by paying our taxes. So could we have some contributions, please, on verse 1? I'm just going to ask, Brother Jack, in a general sense... The Apostle Paul doesn't say too much about this whole subject of government, a verse or two in, in First Timothy, a brief reference, maybe a verse in Titus. Have you any thought why he gives a whole section of seven verses when he's writing to Rome? At that time, Rome would have been the seat of the empire. The Roman Empire dominated the whole of the then world at that particular time. And it was going to come to it that the Roman Empire would persecute the Christians. Now we're going to see that generally rulers are not a terror to good works. But it was going to come to it that the Roman Empire would harass believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's showing that even in circumstances like that, they had a duty not to be disruptive in any way, not to be rebellious in any way. And I think it's possibly because of the dominance of Rome and they were domiciled in Rome, likely for that reason. He's going at length to show them their attitude to government. Have you any further thoughts on that? No, and even even the previous book of Scripture, the Acts of the Apostles, to me it's always been amazing that about a whole quarter of the Acts of the Apostles is not taken up with gospel preaching. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The last quarter is taken up with Paul giving a defence. There are riots in Jerusalem and riots here and riots there. Mm-hmm. And the Apostle gives a defence uh, before Jews and before Romans to show that Christianity is not inherently subversive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Christianity does not make people anti-government rebels by default. Mm, yes. There must be other circumstances that do that. I was wondering, given the timing of the Jews being put away from Rome, and it could be that now they're filtering back to Rome, that there's going to be a lot of resentment in the heart of some of those believers for losing much, and there's also going to create relationship problems between Jews and Gentiles, and that's why we have the next chapter. Yes, it's true that a wave of anti-Semitism had swept 
the empire and in Acts chapter 18 you'll read about the Jews being expelled including Aquila and Priscilla. It must have been traumatic to be uprooted from the Jewish ghetto there in Rome and to be sent to the likes of Corinth for example. Uh, Everything about it would have militated against their Jewish sensibilities but as the brother Elton said likely now they were drifting back and there was always the possibility that in their hearts there could be this this grudge, a chip in their shoulder against those who'd so persecuted them. Just what our brother Elton said there, that decree, as Acts 18 tells us, was made by Claudius. Yeah. Mm. Claudius has died. Mm. And once he died, the decree became null and void. Mm-hmm. So now Jews are coming back again. Brother Jack, in, in, in all of these chapters from verse 3 of chapter 12 right through to the end, aren't they all based upon the foundation that he has laid in the first two verses of chapter 12? Mm-hmm. And that is the relationship with Christ practically and the relationship with the world. And then that gives rise to the expressions that we're finding now in relation to authority. I think the point is, Donald, that if we get number one responsibility right, everything else will just fall into place after that. If our attitude to God is right, if we have presented our bodies a living sacrifice, we'll have no problem with verse 2. We won't be conforming to this world. And our attitudes will be adjusted in regard to all these other issues that crop up. Could I just ask, Jack, what's your view uh, on the every soul here? Do Do you link it back to chapter 12? And the emphasis there on the mind? Or... Well, yeah. Sometimes, though, you discover that the word soul in Scripture just means a person. Yeah. You know, we're told about how many souls were in the boat that was in danger of going down in the shipwreck in Acts chapter 27. The, the number just escapes my mind. Is it something like 276 souls? It's n- not persons, not people, but they're called souls. So sometimes this word soul is employed. Uh, again, in Second Peter, you discover that there were a few, that is, eight souls saved through water. And so sometimes the word soul just stands for the person. And, and that's the way that I'd look at it. In particular, Christian people here, let every soul be subject to the, the higher powers. The main subject is lifted to a high level here, is it not? It's based on the subject of justification. In Titus, it's based on regeneration. In First Peter, it's based on redemption. Good. Uh-huh. Thank you. So, you mentioned the end of chapter 12, which was covered last year, as you say. But at the end of chapter 12, we're told not to, not to take wrath into our own hands, mm-hmm. but we're told to do good. So do those two thoughts, I'm thinking, carry over into this section. Mm-hmm. We still do good yeah. and we leave the wrath yeah. to divinely appointed authorities. Yeah, I think that is the point that's going, he, he beareth not the sword in vain. It's not for you to take up arms in any way at all. It's not for you to be insubordinate. You know, it's the, it's the, it's the authority established by God that has a responsibility, among other things, to maintain law and order and a spirit of anarchy should never prevail. Brian? Are we right, right to, to say that democracy is the lowest form of government? Well, it's very ineffective, as we see in our own country at this present time. But the point is, whether it's democracy or whether it is a, a totalitarian regime, a dictatorship, 
Whatever government, it's installed by God. You know, Nebuchadnezzar was a very, very authoritarian person. But he was placed where he was by God. And so you discover the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men, and he giveth it to whomsoever he will, and setteth over it even the basest of men. There's not one of you people here today who would have voted for Nebuchadnezzar. Am I right? Whom he would, he slew. And whom he would, he kept alive. And yet he was the man whom God installed at the head of the great Babylonian Empire. So, I'm just dropping this in. A verse like that would keep me back from the polling station. Isn't that really the thought that you have at the end of verse number one? That the form of power is ordained of God and the occupier of that power Mm -hmm. is also appointed of God. So, so it's the fact... The fact of government, not the form. And as you have mentioned, the two books of Scripture, amongst other books, but the two big books, the Daniel of the Old Testament and the Romans of the New Testament that emphasize this subject, powers of the ordained of God, one was Nebuchadnezzar, mm-hmm. the other was Nero. Coming, yeah. So mm-hmm. those are the two books yeah. that really reinforce... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and really the fact that such men were installed in such positions of authority would emphasize that God sometimes does set over the basest of men. Now, if you were going to the, the polling booth to place your X against a man, you would place your X against a man who uh, anti-abortionist, you know, a, a man anti-euthanasia, and etc., etc., etc. That might not be the person whom God wants to install in power. So there would always be the danger that when you put your cross against a a gentleman or a lady's name, you could be voting against the man whom God rejects. So that has to be kept. I would hate to think at any time I was putting my weight behind someone whom God didn't want in government. Now, Mark. Uh, This uh, being in subjection, Jack, what does that look like in practice? What's included in being subject it means that I won't go out with a banner, a protest banner, protesting about some laws that government want to pass. It, it, it means that I will acknowledge the laws of the land in every respect. Now, there is one caveat. In Acts chapter 5, Peter said, we ought to obey God rather than men. So if it comes to it, if it comes to the crunch that they are passing some legislation that uh, is in direct contravention with the word of God, then we don't really need to bow to that. God's way should be adopted rather than man's dictates. Now, just one second and I'll be with you. Just to go back to what Jonathan was talking about last evening, he mentioned that sometimes people, even in education, have huge issues of conscience. Now, that's how it is in the world today. But the thing is, the principle is, we ought to obey God rather than man. Now, I say that though, but just keeping in mind, the way you do a thing, the the stance that you adopt, the language that you use, has to be proper language. There is a little principle in Scripture that the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. My friends... If you're taking up a cause that is right and biblical, but if you're doing it in an angry frame of mind, 
in a belligerent kind of way, you've lost the day. Whether it be in assembly life or in secular life, if you're saying the right thing in the wrong way, you've lost the day. So maybe we should keep that in mind. Sorry, brother, I've kept you standing. So there is a difference between obedience and a spirit of subjection and submission. Mm-hmm. And is it seen illustrated in Daniel? Daniel did not obey the decree of the king, mm-hmm. but he was subject and he was submissive to the punishment that came yeah. as a result of his disobedience. Mm-hmm. So he obeyed God rather than men, yeah. but he was still subject yeah. and submissive to the power. Yeah. I, I think we've got to understand that if you take a stand on an issue, then there could be repercussions. Uh, I'll be perfectly honest with you. As preachers, we do not live in the real world. Now, I acknowledge that. I mean, we could lie in our bed till lunchtime. And, and you know, nobody would know. You know, and, and there's nobody pushing us for targets or anything like that, you know. And so we don't really live in the real world. But there are some of you who are faced with issues. And it could be that if you take a stand on a certain issue at your place of work, that you'll get your P45 at the end of the week. So it's costly. It's costly. And I think our brother is hinting at that. You know, to do the right thing as Daniel did. Imagine eating pulse and drinking water for all that time when he could have been dining sumptuously. There was a cost involved, and yet there was a submissive attitude overall. Would you include in that submission, Brother Jack, uh, what we have in 1 Timothy 2 to pray for those in authority? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's something can be neglected to, mm-hmm. to pray whatever their colour yeah. is, whatever good or bad mm-hmm. that we remember yeah. them in mm-hmm. prayer. Yeah. I think it is important, you know, I don't hear governments being prayed for so very many times in prayer meetings, but they do need our prayers. I know that sometimes they, they annoy us and the things they say and the legislation they pass it it really irritates us because it's not in accordance with the word of God. And yet, we are under mandate to pray for kings and for all that are in authority. Maybe with a kind of ulterior motive that we might live uh, a quiet life in all godliness and honesty. But at the same time, we have a duty to pray for them. And by the way, for our royal family. Our gracious queen, who has ruled over us for 75 77 years I think 67 67. he's a teacher he can do the math 67 years from 52 to 2019 I hope we have her and her concert and her family in our prayers for I tell you they do need our prayers again Jonathan sorry for keeping you standing Jack just a, a word on the distinction here of authority in relation to God and authorities in relation to man, just thinking of coming into verse 2, yep, is there a singularity of authority being established here as far as God is concerned? And even thinking back to the Garden of Eden and the rebellion against the authority, the singularity of authority in contrast mm-hmm. to authorities. Yeah, I, I think it is true that if we want to kick over the traces and if we want to rebel in any sphere, then we are rebelling in the ultimate against God. Because it's God who has established the authority as he will. And so in the ultimate, we are rebelling against him. Three times he says, you know, that they're being ordained of God. It's there mm-hmm. a couple of times in verse 1. It's there in verse 2. And then 
He's a minister of God, as stated yep. three times as well, mm-hmm. verses 4, a couple of times in yep. verse 6. So as Jonathan says, the ultimate authority is very prominent mm-hmm. here. Yeah. We, we don't maybe <coughs> get the flavor of it fully with an English translation. can't be helped. But as you know, Brother Jack, the word subject in verse 1, the word ordained in verse 1, the word ordinance in verse 2, mm-hmm. and the word resisteth, all so different in English, mm-hmm. all come from the same word in the original. Mm-hmm. So if, it's linguistic sacrilege, but if you just let me, uh, I'll spell it out this way. The powers that be are tasseled of God. That's the word tasso. The powers are tasseled. Because they're tasseled by God, we should be subject, and the Greek word is hupotasso. So God has tasseled them. Therefore, we hupotasso. Mm-hmm. If we resist them, verse number two, one of the words, the first word, is antitasso. Mm-hmm. So God has tasseled them. Therefore, we hupotasso. And we don't want to be found anti-tasso in them. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's a very, very strong mm-hmm. in the original mm-hmm. language. Yes. As you Thank you. Brother Jack, uh, at the end of verse number two, receiving damnation. Mm-hmm. As you're in our country, brothers, of great uh, importance in gospel preaching, as soon as we see damnation, we think about hell. Mm-hmm. Would you care to comment? Yeah, I think it's just your general word for judgment. Obviously, someone who violates the law and who resists the authority, when they're taken to court, a sentence will be passed, and in that sense, they will receive judgment. Maybe a fine, maybe an imprisonment. We'll maybe see as we go down, scripturally, in some cases, it could be capital punishment. So, in that sense, they receive judgment, and it isn't necessarily eternal judgment. Mr. Darby and others too, that little expression, shall receive to themselves judgment or shall bring the sentence of guilt on themselves. So what they get, they just ask for Uh it. They're Mm -hmm. to be blamed Mm -hmm. for what they bring on themselves. But the dying thief, we indeed justly, we receive the due reward of our deeds. Someday, oh sorry. So, Brother Jack, applying Christ, when Pilate says, Know ye not that I have power to crucify you or to release you? And the Lord says, Thou hast no power unless God gives it to you. So you have the Lord being subject Mm -hmm. to the authority and not bucking against it. Yeah, the submissiveness of the Lord Jesus in these circumstances is absolutely remarkable. You know, he, he's the lamb led to the slaughter, a sheep dumb before his shearers. And in circumstances that were so unjust, he bows to it, even although he did have the power. You know, I, I, it, it's hypothetical saying this, but he did have the power to override Pilate's judgment. But it's good to see he was submissive in it all. Yes, our brother has drawn attention to that thou couldst have no power at all over me unless it was given thee from above. I just want to bring it down to our present day. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were told by the government not to preach in the open air any longer. What would we do? Yeah. That's a big question because there, there might be difficulties that will come our way very shortly. That is a possibility uh, and it could be that some of our dear brethren might feel we'll, we'll test this. And we will preach in the open air, but you know we would need to 
be willing for the consequences of that. Other dear brethren might think now, although we're not permitted to preach in the open air, there are other ways in which we can go about this evangelism business and it could be maybe in the knocking more doors or in the distribution of more literature and it could be that energies could be ploughed into the thing in other directions which are absolutely legitimate and scriptural. I confess to being puzzled a bit Would not this chapter tell us that we should not preach in the open air? We should because we're just advertising to everyone around that we're breaking the law. We're doing it deliberately. But we get back to the principle that we highlighted earlier, Elton. We ought to obey God rather than men. And the Lord Jesus, before he went back to heaven, he did commission his disciples to preach, preach the gospel. And and so... Traditionally, over the years, even in Bible days, they preached in the open air. And I would think that, you know, some of our dear brethren might want to put this new law to the test. And they might want to preach in the open air. But I take it you would be happier just to keep your head down, would you? I'm not for keeping my head down. <laughs> but I would, I would say that we would have to be very careful. There are a lot of our brethren around the world would be literally taken out and shot or whatever uh-huh. and I think that we're not to cast ourselves before lions and to be silly about about this but just to be law abiding citizens and to go about evangelizing it doesn't require us to stand up in the open air and direct defiance to the government mm-hmm. well I, I take the point but again you know you've got to weigh it up some of our dear brother may have a thin conviction that this ought to be done and they apply the principle of Acts 5 we ought to obey God rather than in men but They've got to take the flack. You know, if they're going to do it that way, then they've got to accept the consequences. Martin. Well, exactly. It's Paul and Silas and Philippi not being an example where they, they went against the laws, but yet they were cast into prison. Yeah, they had to take the consequences. Uh, I just, in what sense did they go against the laws, Martin? It's just well, they were against the gospel. You know, the, uh, the, the authorities were against the gospel. Yeah, okay. Now, maybe we should move to verse 3. Sorry, Don. Just comment on, on these verses. There's no conditionality attached. It's absolute, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, that is true. And but while there's no conditions attached, in this particular passage, we're thinking of benign rulers. And we're thinking of rulers who are installed. And if people do good, they'll have praise of the same and so on. Now, that is a generality. We've been hearing about the ascendancy of Nero. It was going to come to it that Nero was not in the business of praising those who do good. And he was not in the business of uh, just turning a blind eye to gospel preaching. We were hearing last evening of how the Christians were thrown to the lions. And others would have been tarred and set ablaze as human torches around the arena. So in this particular chapter, we're dealing with things as they would be normally in a kind of benign condition. Gary? Just uh, take you on then into verse 3. Sure, thank this you. opening statement, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Is this just a general statement as to what law and government should be yeah. and as to what God intends it to be? Is that the point? I, I think that's the point. And Peter emphasizes it as well. He speaks of them as being for the praise of them that do well. And that is a general principle. But we all know that sometimes circumstances arise where governments are bitter and hostile towards the gospel. And it is so in the world even yet, in many parts of the world. 
just sort of to, you know, to bring those two different uh, thoughts together. I thought in verse 3 it wasn't so much our testimony as Christians, what we preach and so on here. It's actually living a life uh, of purity, mm-hmm. uh, a life of obedience to the law. Yeah. And even Nero uh, and people like that, and most even the most uh, oppressive governments today will not punish you for being a good neighbor. Mm-hmm. They won't punish you for obeying the law. They, they will punish you for stealing, no matter what mm-hmm. country you're in. So I don't see really any contradiction here in terms of the gospel. I think this is more if you live a good, upright life as a good mm-hmm. citizen, then yeah. you'll not get into trouble, even in the oppressive regimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rulers are not a terror to good works. Mm-hmm. And I take it that the good works would be the charitable acts that you do, the acts of kindness, and so on. And I know that good works get a bad press on a Sunday night, because we really have got to emphasize it to people it's not of works, lest any man should boast. But hard on the heels of that, the apostle says to the Ephesians, you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So a person who has been saved by faith will evidence that in their acts of kindness, their deeds of charity. Now tell me, are you a good neighbor? Are you a helpful colleague? These are the kind of things that are valued by people in the world, including by governments, as our brother David has pointed out. John. Uh, Jack, the example has been raised of uh, open-air preaching. Mm-hmm. It's maybe not the best example because we haven't clear commands about where we can preach or, or where not to, but on moral issues we have clear commands. Mm-hmm. Now, if a government... Uh, allows abortion mm-hmm. or, or same-sex unions. That's one thing. We can still be subject to that government. But that's a, it's a different matter when the government demands that a gospel hall accommodates a same-sex union. Mm-hmm. Now, where's, where do we stand then when, mm-hmm. it, when it becomes not a matter of permission by the government but actually a demand that it be bowed to? Mm-hmm. Give us some help there. Well, I would judge that in circumstances like that, we would have to take a stand and resist the pressure, but realising we're going to be willing to take the consequences. You know, uh, Just this past couple of weeks, uh, we were in a, Craig Monroe and I were in a place preaching, and a clergyman in a neighbouring village is a genuine believer, and he was encouraging his people to come to the meetings, and we had a chat with him one day, and he was trying to kind of defend his position, and he says, in our little corner, you know, these kind of things don't crop up yet. And he says, I still have the liberty to say no. But he says, I'm wondering whether I'll see my time through without getting the sack for eventually saying no when more pressure is brought. So I think it would come to it, it could come to it, John, that we could be pressurised to bow to these things and it would be time then to put the shutters up. You know, I I, I personally, in Scotland, I am authorised to conduct weddings. Now, if you're wanting a wedding in Scotland, I could arrange it for you, young person, you could organise that. But the, the point is, the point is, if two men came or two women came wanting me to conduct a wedding, as things stand at the moment in the law, we could say no, without any repercussions. But things move so fast, you wonder how long that would 
obtain. And so, my, my answer to you, John, is, you know, we would have to say no. And Now, I know that some of our people in the medical world, they do have these problems of conscience with regard to abortion and so on, and they've got to make up their mind, do I cooperate with this or not? So, that's why I say to you, as preachers, we don't live in the, in the real world. You know, we don't have these issues to face. But many of you out there do. And we trust that God will give you grace as you face these issues. Daniel 3. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. Well, that is right. You know, in Daniel 3, the three young men were saying, we're not going to bow. And uh, our God is able to deliver us. And if not, we're still going to take the consequences. So, uh, we've got to wake up to the fact that there are consequences if we were sorry. I was going to say, I'm just trying maybe to get back to the point that our brother David has made, David Mack, mm-hmm. has made that this really does come down to the mundane. You would never expect to see a believer in assembly fellowship having his name in the local paper for breaking the law or for getting, like, speeding or getting caught and driving with his mobile phone or causing litter in the town. Isn't it, isn't it as mundane as that? Yeah. That there are laws made of the most ordinary, simple, basic nature mm-hmm. and we should not break them. And the, the fault is not getting caught. The fault is committing it in the first place. I know, we would have to concur with that, Donald, but I'm absolutely certain there's not a person in here today who's never broken the speed limit. No, seriously, I'm absolutely certain about that. And the majority of you haven't been caught. But think about it. If somebody's dog comes running out of a gate and you're doing 40 instead of 30, Worse still, if someone's child runs across the road and you're doing 40 instead of 30, maybe it would be worthwhile us thinking these things through. When the late Mr. Tom Campbell, known to some of us still, was sitting in the passenger seat of his car one day, driven by a preacher, he said, isn't it wonderful that preachers have been exempted from the speed limit. (laughs) (laughs) Just, uh, um, I think maybe, just to keep it general, uh, maybe Mr. Darby hits the the note there. Wilt wilt or dost thou desire then not to be afraid of the power? Practice that which is good. And then the next verse, if thou practice that which is evil. Mm-hmm. So that we're not talking about uh, inadvertently breaking the speed limit or like that's not rebellion against the government. It's I think the constant practice of mm-hmm. a believer's life. Mm-hmm. You know, he, that's right. He's mm-hmm. committed to good and he doesn't live a life of evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you'd have to say, David, there are people in here who think that they're Lewis Hamilton. <laughs> no, really, and that's the way they drive. You know, and that is clearly in contravention of the teaching of the word of God. It's not just a a minor infraction of the law on an occasion, but that is their attitude. Get from here to there as quickly as possible. Ignore speed limits. That is insubordination. Sorry, Harold. The ruler in verse number three, there is a negative side and a positive side. And you can see very clearly there that the negative side that the ruler is not a terror to good works. But the positive side is that he's there to deal with evil. Mm -hmm. But the Apostle Paul goes on in the verse 
and he gives us good instruction, which to us is the best. He says, wilt thou be afraid of the power? In other words, would we be afraid of the ruler? No, not at all. Why is that? Because we as Christians, we should be doing what it says here. Do that which is good. And then he says, why is that? Because, as you've already said, testimony sake will praise. The rulers of no problems, they will praise us for doing mm-hmm. that which is yeah. right. Uh, and the state actually recognises some people for the good that they do. And they maybe get an OBE or a CBE. And some of our dear brethren would maybe feel, oh, I don't want anything to do with that. But at the same time, it is nice. I think it's always nice if uh, any of our dear brethren have done something notable uh, and something that, that is praiseworthy and the state recognises that and they've got the praise of, of the same, as our verse says here. Now, uh, I think we should keep moving. We're doing fine, but it'll soon be one o'clock, so let's keep moving. We don't have too many verses, but I think we will really need to keep moving through. What about verse 4 then? He is the minister of God to thee for good. Is this the person that's in view or the person's position of authority that's in view? I notice in relation to Mr. Darby's translation, that uh, it ends in verse number 3, thou shalt have praise from it. Mm -hmm. Then verse 4, for it is God's minister to thee for good. For it bears not the sword in vain. For it is God's minister. This is the office that the man holds, not the man personally. The, The revised version margin consistently translates like that as well. So it's the position of authority. But obviously, uh, rules are executed by individuals, but it's the state as an entity that is, is, uh, 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 is the power that if you do good, you'll have praise of the same. So, so is this the... And you have emphasised this, Brother Jack. Verse 1, let every soul be subject. Why? For, number 1. Mm-hmm. Verse 3... For reason two. Verse four. For mm-hmm. reason three. The yep. first reason is we're subject because of the constitution of God. God has constituted government. Mm-hmm. The second reason, verse three, the commendation of good. Mm-hmm. Good government commends good. Third reason we subject is the condemnation of the guilty. Mm-hmm. They're a terror to what is evil. So he's yep. building up a, a case mm-hmm. from different yep. angles. Mm-hmm. The word minister in verse 4 is our very ordinary word of deacon. Were you going to tell us that, Mark? No, just keep standing there for a second then. It's a very ordinary word for deacon. It's a different word when we move on in our passage. He is the deacon of God. We're going to discover in our passages that this word deacon is a very general word that means a servant. Uh, Our brother David G. will come across it in his Bible reading in in reference to the Lord Jesus. He is, a minister, he is a deacon in that sense, but I'm not going to go into that. But here, he's a minister, he's a deacon of God to thee for good. Mark. Just, just on the, the, the minister term, there is a sort of a progression here, isn't there? At the beginning of the chapter, we have the fact that the, the, uh, the existence of authority and hierarchy and order, that that's ordained by God. So mm-hmm. that's one reason for our subjection to it. But here, we're thinking about the, the operation of that, the working out of that. Mm-hmm. And in the operation of that authority, he's actually working on God's behalf and serving God. Yeah. 
And although they don't realize it, they are working in God's interest. You, know, you think about Naaman, for example. By him, the Lord gave deliverance to Syria. So God was using a heathen Syrian general to work out his purpose. So whether men realize it or not, they are pawns, I suppose, in the hand of a sovereign God. They are ministers of God. So the, in connection with history and the whole human race, does this, um, this institution of human government, do you take it back as far as Genesis 9? I'm, I'm thinking of what you're coming to in verse 4. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I think that's when it was instituted and the reference to verse 4 in Genesis 9 linking up would be this he beareth not the sword in vain and in my judgment that is a reference that takes in capital punishment he beareth not the sword in vain and it's back in Genesis chapter 9 that that was initiated whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed it was never rescinded under the law and there is nothing in the New Testament that would indicate that capital punishment should be rescinded. Any comments? Would you be happy that, uh, yes, it is capital punishment, but it's more than that. It's really a symbol of authority. Exactly. The ultimate yeah. of which yeah. is the right to yeah. execute capital punishment. Yeah. It would take mm-hmm. everything else up to that as yeah. well. Yeah, the sword is the symbol of authority. Mark? Just in connection with that, one of the, the arguments that's often made against capital punishment is, well, it's not, it doesn't work as a deterrent. It doesn't mm-hmm. stop people doing it. It's not really brought before us as a deterrent no. in this passage. So to think of it just as a deterrent, and we'll give the most serious deterrent that we can, is really to misunderstand what the function of capital punishment is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, go on ahead, David. No, no, just go Because in Genesis 9, you referred to, Brother Jack, um, who shall sheddeth man's blood um, by man shall his blood be shed for he's made in the image of God mm-hmm. Mr. McShane used to constantly emphasize when a man takes another man's life there are two serious reasons number one he has taken something from him that he can never give him back if he takes his car he can replace a car he can take a house he takes his life he can never give it back number two it's a direct blow at the image of God. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that elevates. And mm-hmm. as our brother David has said, if God gave Noah, through Noah, to the, the command, the institution, the permission to execute capital punishment for murder, uh, that's the headline copy for human government. That implies that all lesser mm-hmm. crimes yeah. should mm-hmm. also be legislated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, with this... Uh, word servant Jack there's obviously a responsibility both ways because obviously the critic will argue well if God has ordained government then the awful atrocities that happen the likes of Hitler and so on then God is behind that but the people who are put in government are responsible to God for the laws that they pass Mm -hmm. Um, and if we can understand that then that will help us not to get into protests Uh, and and against it I know that some of you might be saying, insisting that this has to do with capital punishment, would maybe militate against what we have at the end of chapter 12, where vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord, and there ought never to be a vengeful spirit in the heart of a believer. True, there ought never to be a vengeful spirit in the heart of the believer. But the point is, it's not believers that have been spoken of here. It won't be your responsibility to throw the switch of the electric chair or to apply the lethal injection 
or to pull the lever that sees the man drop down, hanged by the neck until he's dead. That responsibility is not yours. It is the responsibility of the state. When it comes to Christian behaviour, if one shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And that's the spirit at the end of Romans chapter 12 as well. You leave it in the hands of God. But, you know, while someone might steal from you, and you might say, well, I'll just, just forget it. Well, just let me give you an illustration. Someone stole a missionary box out of the Gospel Hall in Perth a number of years ago, and uh, we chased them. And uh, the press said he was pursued by a member of staff and some of the congregation. I was the member of staff. <laughs> Just because I told them I was a preacher at the Gospel Hall, I was the member of staff. But, you know, he was caught, it was retrieved, and our men said, right, away you go. But an off-duty policeman had witnessed the thing. He called his colleagues. They were on the spot. We were willing to ignore it, but the state stepped in, and they pursued the thing. You, you see the difference, you know. We, we would be willing to let a man go and circumvent, but the state has a responsibility to maintain law and order. Yeah, what comes just before, as you said, is to do with vengeance, and it won't be too long before we're looking at what comes after about love. Um, there's no incompatibility. Our role is to love and not no. take vengeance. No. The role of the state is different. From yeah, ours. that's right, exactly. Brother Jack, when you get to verse 5, do we have deterrent? A person should not break the law, should be subject to the powers that be, because there is a consequence. Mm-hmm. and knowledge of that should be a deterrent but there is a much higher level of compliance with the law and that is the issue of conscience mm-hmm. yeah I think that's important to see you know that uh, for our conscience sake there are certain things that we cannot do including resist Simon Zelotis for example he, he joined the armed struggle and he was saying Romans out you know Romans go home and all the rest of it but when he trusted Christ, that whole attitude would have to be reversed for conscience sake. Now, he could not, with a clear conscience, continue in the resistance movement anymore. Now, similarly, if we are going to maintain a clear conscience, then we must submit to the rules, the regulations, the laws of the government of our land. Desmond. Jack, this word revenger in verse 4 is only found in one other place in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 6. Mm-hmm. The Lord is the avenger. Yeah. So this is delegated authority from the Lord, yeah. mm-hmm. and that raises it to a, a very high standard for yeah. a ruler. Mm-hmm. That's right. As far as that other reference is concerned, it has to do with moral- morality, and if it should be that a person is guilty of Adultery, in the context of 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord is the avenger. Similar truth in Hebrews chapter 13, whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. So I, I think that should be kept in mind, that people might keep the thing secretly, secret, uh, and they might, have, they might have been guilty of immorality in a clandestine fashion. God has seen it, and God is the avenger of all such. Just in keeping with all that you've been saying there, brethren, the order in the original at the end of verse 4 is quite significant. <clears throat> the order there is not, he is the minister of God. The order in the original is, God's minister mm-hmm. is he. 
to execute vengeance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So because he's representing God, he's executing yeah. God's yeah. vengeance. In verse 5, we have both sides. We have the outward and the inward. We have the wrath for the, man, for the, for the government, and we have the inward, the conscience. conscience. Mm-hmm. Good. And doesn't Peter throw, bring in another one? So the external reason, wrath, the government, internal reason is uh, conscience, the spiritual reason, submit to every for the Lord's sake. sake. Good. So there's Good. a third yeah. Could you just elaborate? Oh, sorry. Sorry, brother. No. The word conscience, conscience, it, what, is, what is this person conscious of? Is it, is it just the authority that is in God that has been divested to man? Or what, what is the conscience that I should have adjusted in this Bible reading? I think it has to do with a person's sensitivity as to right and wrong. And they'll know that if they've, if they've deliberately offended the state and further up the like God, you know, they'll know that. And their sense of guilt, will get, and for conscience sake, to avoid that sense of guilt, they submit to the authority. I, I, I thought it was chapter 2. Yeah, uh-huh. the, the Gentiles uh-huh. have the law written yeah. uh-huh. on their conscience. That's right. Uh-huh. So yeah. it's that general yeah. moral sensitivity uh-huh. that yeah. God has given man by creation. I, I think we need to understand that conscience is not 100% accurate as a monitor. Chapter 2 will tell us that sometimes conscience can accuse and sometimes conscience can excuse. And so it is not just you know, an absolutely... A good monitor. Uh, it's far better to come to the Word of God to judge right and wrong. But we all know that we do have a conscience. Isn't it important? Ma- sorry, Stephen, go ahead. I'm just going to say, isn't it important that our conscience is regulated by the Word of God? Exactly. It's that not is just right. that uh-huh. I have no conscience about it. Uh-huh. No, but we have Scripture for that, it. Exactly. That's right. Mark? And then doesn't uh, this underline the point that you've already made about the problem not being getting caught, the problem doing the thing that we could get caught for? If mm-hmm. it was just the wrath was the issue at the beginning of the verse, well, if we thought we'd get off with it, we could go ahead. Yeah. But conscience is still going to yeah. uh, catch us even if we do get off with it. Yeah, good. Just, just, I know you're rushing on. Aye, uh, just say a word yes or no type of thing. Abortion, obeying government, not obeying government, just we didn't elaborate on it. You haven't time to elaborate upon does Exodus 1 come in there? Yeah, I, I think there would be a principle there that the, the midwives were keen to preserve the children. Uh, Pharaoh had dictated the children be put to death. The midwives were under mandate to kill every male child. They said no. Similarly, there could be those in the medical world who, from a legal standpoint, should be performing an abortion, but from a conscience standpoint... From a biblical standpoint, they say no. And of course, God honoured these midwives. And God will honour you. Now, moving on, for this cause, for this cause, that is, so that you remain subject and so that you don't have this conscience problem, for this cause, pay ye tribute also. It amounts to the same thing. Is there any possibility... This cause, for, for this cause, pay your taxes. What cause? Because these, this government is God's minister. Mm-hmm. They're providing a service. Yeah. And because they're providing a service, you support yeah. them. That's right. Good. 
It's been often pointed out that the word minister here is a different word, yeah. but I've been struggling to just work out what the difference is. Could you help us on I think the word deacon in the previous verses would be your just general word for servant. Here it's more an official servant, and there's maybe the concept of dignity connected with this particular word, an official servant. And I think these men ought to move with dignity. I know they don't all do it. Uh, and some of them are most undignified and coarse and rough. But at the same time, people in any position of authority ought to move with a dignity about them. It's the same, the same in assembly life. Elders, preachers, there ought to be a dignity about them. Official servants in that sense. Now, uh, what about this paying of tribute? I think the word tribute would maybe be the word that has to do with the taxes that a subjugated nation would have to pay and then maybe the custom would be more indirect taxation the equivalent to our VAT as we call it nowadays and so there are two different kinds of taxes mentioned here uh, and the word in verse 7 quite different to the word pay in verse 6 verse 7 render it's really the word that means pay back yeah so, so we're really paying for services rendered. Exactly. That's right. And I think it is important for us to realize we do have a, a responsibility to finance the expenses of the state. You know, the, the, the police, the courts, and so on. It all takes a lot of money to maintain that and the other services that we enjoy. So we really must pay our way as far as these things are concerned. The dependency culture should never be in evidence among the people of God. We do all have to pay our way. Is there any throwback here, Jack, to the work of the Levites in the Old Testament? That this was a Levitical work these men were engaged in and they had to be supported just... Yeah, I I suppose it's illustrated there in, in the Old Testament. Yes, they had to be supported and the priest you know all the offerings that were brought and so on and uh, meal offerings and so on that was all to support the priest I know it was for God primarily but it was all to support the priesthood and the Levitical Levitical, uh, thing and so in a similar way this is not religious but it is political and we have a responsibility to support them so it's not our The wrong causes. We just give. T- I know. We don't have a responsibility for the exchequer. We don't. And I know we get outraged sometimes at the things that things are spent on. And we would love to see our roads in a better condition, etc., etc., etc. And oftentimes, government money is poured into a black hole. But at the same time, we do have a responsibility to pay our way because we are getting the benefits of the law and order that's maintained to a large extent. Gary? What Brother Brian has raised is quite often the thing that you hear amongst believers about Mm -hmm. what government does. I think the great principle is what the Lord Jesus taught, render unto Caesar Mm -hmm. the things that are Caesar's. So I think that would cover it and this chapter as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I can ask you... I'm stepping away back from the passage to just ask a bigger theological question that you haven't time to deal with, just your word on it. There's a very strong body of theologians called Christian theonomists, and they believe that the ideal for government 
are the laws that were given to Israel. Mm-hmm. Now, and they are lobbying strongly, it's mainly an American thing, lobbying strongly. A government is not righteous unless they carry through the laws to Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think of that? Is that a misunderstanding of the change of dispensations or whatever? Uh, undoubtedly it is. You know, we, we would have discovered back in Romans 7 that as believers we are not under obligation to the law. Although, we will come to verses today which show, show we are duty-bound to fulfill the moral requirements of the law. But then there are dietary laws in connection with the the nation of Israel. For example, and it's clear from the New Testament that we are not bound to these dietary laws. Every creature of God is good to be received with thanksgiving and so on. And I'm not going to get into a big discussion about black puddings and all that kind of a thing, but you would know, you would know that the dietary laws, uh, you'll come to it this afternoon. Don't bring in the black puddings, please. (laughs) (laughs) No, these folks... For example, just that these folks maybe wouldn't insist so much on that, but uh, capital punishment in the Old Testament for murder, mm-hmm. but also capital punishment for adultery, mm-hmm. and also capital punishment for a rebellious son. Mm-hmm. And this will preserve family life, it will preserve marriage, and we should be implementing these laws that were given to Israel. Mm-hmm. Now, I take that to be a serious misunderstanding. So we go back to Genesis 9. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. God never intended the theocracy of Israel to become a model for the other nations of the world. No, no. no. We don't kill people for adultery or for rebellious sons or anything like that. I'm not meant to either. And the thing is, the fact that these people are lobbying for that is a clear violation of what we have at the beginning of our chapter. They are trying to push that, whereas subjection to civil authority is being taught at the beginning of the chapter. Who did you call them again, David? Christian theonomists. Well, we'll recognise them the next time we see them. <laughs> <laughs> the book, bookshelves are filled, especially with uh, books written by those. Good. Right, we'll move on then to verse 8. It's a new section, really. Owe no man anything but to love one another. And this theme of indebtedness is a theme that crops up here and there in the epistle to the Romans. For example, in chapter 1, I'm a debtor. And there, you owe people the gospel. In chapter 8, we are debtors not to the flesh, but by implication to the spirit. So if we're going to be, uh, if we're going to be strong believers, living victorious lives, then we are really indebted to the energy, the power of the Holy Spirit, and not to the flesh. And then our brother David, again, when he comes to chapter 15, you'll discover that it crops up there the idea of indebtedness. Gentiles are indebted to the Jews. We've reaped the benefit of their spiritual things and now we we pay back, as it were. Uh, We are indebted to them and we pay back in carnal things. Indebtedness. So, Brian. So, the idea here of uh, owing no man anything it's really indicating, is it, that we must have sufficient assets to meet our every financial requ- uh, requirement? Yeah, I think so. Now, I, I have personally known people, Brian, who would come to a verse like this and say, you shouldn't have a mortgage. Now, I would have a difficulty with that in the sense that there would have been very few people here who would have been homeowners if it hadn't been for the fact that they were able to get a mortgage. 
but the house that they bought stands a security for the debt that they've incurred. And the thing would be, owe no man anything in the sense that you'll be paying your debts timorously. You won't be the kind of person that the tradesman can look at and say, look, I've got cash flow problems, and he's a man that's contributed to it. Owe no man anything in that sense. Could I be forgiven for thinking this has nothing to do with money or anything like that at all, but rather it's to do with the fear and the, it's the taxes, it's the tribute, it's the custom, it's the honor, and that it's that strictly in the context so that we shouldn't even bring in even a mortgage or anything into this. This has nothing to do with assets or owing. Well, I brought the money into it because he's been speaking about paying money, custom to whom custom is due and, and so on. So in that context, he's been speaking about money and, and so... That is why I would have incorporated these other things in it which involve money. The Lord Jesus did say if someone wants to borrow something from you, you are to give it to them. Mm -hmm. And so the Lord is not condemning borrowing. And it could even be that you don't have any assets behind it, but that we will lend our brother something to get him going again. Mm -hmm. And then maybe we'll get it back. Maybe we won't. So I just was just drawing. I'm pulling right back away from this whole owing, meaning anything to do with these commercial transactions. Uh Certainly what you're saying would come into the next phrase, loving one another. You know, if your brother does need your help, then you'd be willing to minister to him without any thought of being recompensed. Harold? That's what I was just going to say, Jack. Uh, In the context you rightly are saying in relation to money, but when you read the rest of the verse, I think there's more than money that we owe to others. It's respect, Mm -hmm. kindness, mercy, Mm -hmm. and I think he qualifies that by the rest of the verse, for he says... But to love one another. And then he says, He that loveth another fulfilled the law. Mm. So that's owing. So yeah. I think it's more than money. Yeah. With what Brother Elton brought in, I think you know, he's absolutely right. The context that leads on to this is the money we pay to government. But the, no man, I think, does widen it out yeah. uh, to a general principle. But when somebody takes on a mortgage, they um, agree with the institution to pay a certain amount per month. Mm-hmm. Whatever, and as long as they do that, the institution has no quarrel mm-hmm. with them. They're keeping to the terms of the contract. If they fail to pay, I think that's where this yeah. verse mm-hmm. uh, comes in here. So, as you said, like tradesmen and that sort of thing, we should never be people who are known to have got a job done and refuse to do it. So, I take mm-hmm. Elton's point fully, but I think the, the yeah. application certainly would mm-hmm. extend to what yeah. you've brought mm-hmm. in. So, so, let the translation that we wouldn't maybe always prefer, but the translation that has it, let no debt remain outstanding, mm-hmm. captures mm-hmm. fairly yep. well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was an older brother in the assembly in Perth years ago, and he said that when he was young, his mother would never incur any debt, to the extent that when the milkman left the milk on the step every morning, she was out to pay it. Now, the young people here will not know what a milkman is, but they, they used to deliver her milk in bottles to the step, you know, and then at the end of the week they would come for their money. She went out every morning. I'm sure the milkman thought she was a pest. <laughs> really, you know. When the bill is, is, is put to you, that's the time to pay it. <clears throat> he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Now, he has shown in chapter 7 that we are dead to the law. You know, in the early chapters of Romans, the law played no part in our justification. A man is justified by faith 
without the works, apart from the works of the law. In chapter 7, the law plays no part in our sanctification. We are dead to the law. And he'll show us, he develops the theme that sanctification is as a consequence of the activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But at the same time, while we are dead to the law and we have no obligation to it, he's showing here, well, if I could just lift a phrase from chapter 8, the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So spontaneously, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ will love his neighbor, and if he's loving his neighbor, he won't commit adultery with his neighbor's wife. And he won't steal his neighbor's goods, etc., etc. And it's all under the umbrella of loving your neighbor as yourself. Uh, certainly, it should be spontaneous, but doesn't the language of owing in the verse also remind us that this is an obligation? That's, mm-hmm. that's the point of this yep. is the debt that we owe. Yeah. So there's no outstanding debt that we should have in the sense of the beginning of the verse, but here is a debt that we will never fully pay. It's something we're always paying until the Lord Mm -hmm. takes us home. So so just to be clear on the link between the believer and law, because we have died to the law, as you have mentioned, chapter 7 and so on, the Christian is never expected to keep the law. But the Christian in the power of the Holy Spirit, walking in the Holy Spirit, fulfills the law. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's a great difference between keeping the law as the old is and fulfilling it Good. now. Mm-hmm. And a man, a man walking in love uh, will fulfill the law, but a man keeping the law will not necessarily walk in love. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. So it doesn't work. Yeah. Ah, so that's right. why yeah. uh-huh. that's why love is the fullness of the law. Yeah. It's not just that love a man that walks in love sort of manages to break even. Mm-hmm. He actually achieved all that the law was aiming at yeah, and enjoyed that yeah. fullness. Yeah. Sometimes people endeavouring to keep the law can be as cold as ice. <laughs> you know, and, and our brother has shown that really it ought to be love that motivates us as far as fulfilling the law is concerned. Yeah, Jonathan. Would you bring in Galatians 6 here, Tack? Uh, ye that are spiritual, fulfill the law of Christ. So that was a higher standard, Mm -hmm. as it were, uh, under the law. You shall not commit adultery, but Christ Mm -hmm. said, If a man lusteth after a woman in his own heart, he hath committed adultery. So is the law of Christ here? It is true that the Lord Jesus expanded the law, and he raised the standard, not only as far as adultery is concerned, but violence as well. Thou shalt not kill, but I say unto you, he that is angry with his brother without a cause is in danger of the judgment. So he did lift the standard and it's, although I haven't said that John, in this particular context it is the Decalogue that's mentioned uh, uh, and it all comes under this loving your neighbour as yourself. Gary. So it's that, that uh, love here is, is to do with the will isn't it? Yeah. Uh-huh. So there is an act, it's a, it's a command isn't it as in other chapters? Yeah. Love is not just a strange sensation in the heart. I think we all need to understand that. You know, sometimes uh, when I was a young fellow and heard the brethren inciting us to love our brethren, I felt I just wasn't able to work up these emotions that they were encouraging us to, to, to aim at somehow or another. But then, as you discover in the Word of God, love is not something that is purely emotional. It says, John, let us love neither in word or in tongue but in deed and in truth. 
I think Mr. Payton used to come to your Bible reading sometimes uh, from Scotland. He's gone a long while now. But he used to say to us sometimes, it's a good job some folk tell you they love you. (laughs) Brother Jack, in the Old Testament, they were exhorted in the commandments and that to love their neighbor. But the difference with ourselves is this. They had no internal power to help them with that love. Where we today should be able to execute that much better because we have an internal power Uh that helps us to do Uh it. That's right. You know, the love your neighbor as yourself was an Old Testament command, but uh, Jonathan has drawn attention to the fact that the Lord lifted the thing and he said, love one another as I have loved you. So that raises the standard somewhat. And the love with which we've been loved has now to be channeled in the direction of those who belong to Christ. It's illustrated in John 21. When Peter affirmed his love for the Lord Jesus, Thou knowest all things, Thou knowest that I love thee. All right, Peter, let your love for me be channeled to those who belong to me. Feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. And so there's a principle, brethren, love for Christ really ought to be directed to those who belong to Christ in practical ways. Now, some of these practical ways here are negative. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. So, you mentioned mustering up these feelings. This is the seventh reference to love in the epistle. The first references 2 and 5 and 2 and 8 refer to divine love. So it's our appreciation of divine love that gives us the energy to, be, yep. to, to, uh-huh. to appreciate that. So in verse, we've had love's debt, uh, and the obligation of love, you mentioned that in verse 8. Would you say these are love's opposites in, mm-hmm. in verse 9? Yeah. So that if I commit adultery, I've done damage to my neighbor's purity. Mm-hmm. If I kill, I've done damage to his person. If I steal, I've done damage to his property. And if I covet, I've done damage to his possessions. Mm-hmm. So we're always uh-huh. it's a selfish Good. thing, yeah. leaving uh-huh. the neighbor. Is there yeah. any reason, Jack, why he begins with the seventh commandment and then goes back to the sixth and then goes on to the eighth? Now, what's the, what's I, the I hadn't thought that through, Stephen, to be honest. Uh, maybe some of our brethren have an answer to that one. But I, I would judge that possibly, just possibly, the one that he highlights is the one that people have a propensity to get involved in. Yes, you know, there are people who would never think of stealing from another person, and yet, and yet, when they're tempted sorely, they commit adultery. So, so when he's advocating pure love in the paragraph. He starts, gives bread, yeah, and that speaks about perverted love or, or yeah. lust. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Is that helpful, Stephen? Uh-huh. I think most translations would omit, thou shalt not bear false witness, but, well, whether it's there or not, it would be embraced in the phrase, and if there be any other commandment. So, it's there whether people want to keep it there or not, thou shalt not bear false witness. And I would think, beloved, that this is one which would be more prevalent than some of these others. Whispering behind the back of your hand. Saying something just to put a doubt 
in another person's mind about that brother. Now we need to be guarded. Go not up and down as a talebearer among the people. Sometimes phones are red hot with gossip and slander. You would know that the word slander over 30 times the word slanderer in the Bible is translated devil. Devil. So if you are guilty of slander, bearing false witness against your neighbor, either by deliberate lying or by deceitful innuendo, you're only doing the devil's work for him. And so I would keep this here. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And the fact that you're right on the mark in giving that application, Brother Jack, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, mm-hmm. it says here. Go back to the Old Testament. We don't need to turn to it. Leviticus chapter 18. Mm-hmm. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Just immediately before that it says, thou shalt not go up and down as a tail bearer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Very good. closely linked. I would often wondered in Psalm 1, in what way can you delight in the law of the Lord and meditate in it day and night? Until I read this verse and found that under the thou shalt nots was really a thou shalt love. And that's what makes the meditation so sweet as you're understanding the character of God even as you ponder the yeah. law itself. Good. So we wind up this little section at verse 10. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, can we move on? We've got about 20 minutes left, and there are a few practical issues in the last little section as well, so maybe we could move into verse 11, knowing the time. I think some would tell us that this is the word season, knowing the season, not so much a period of time, but the characteristics of the period of time. So it's important for us to be aware of the moral characteristics of the day and age in which we live. I was just thinking, uh, Jack, it was, it was, it was applied to that time and written how much nearer must it be now. Yeah. We must be in very solemn days, mm-hmm. even the present moment. Mm-hmm. That's right, yeah. He's going to say your salvation is nearer. We'll come to that in a moment or two. Uh, but he's saying now it's high time to awake out of sleep and I take it he's speaking about a moral and spiritual slumber that can overtake the people of God I'm just looking around and I think you're all still awake (laughs) so we won't make any practical application about I haven't looked over in this corner but So I take it that in all your studies of Romans 13 for the meeting, you thought we wouldn't get down as far as this. (laughs) Let's hear what you have to say then about verse 11 and 12. Isn't, uh, just in connection with the epistle in general, isn't knowledge for a Christian, spiritual knowledge, isn't it important? Um, We glory in tribulation, knowing Mm-hmm. You say, how could you glory in trip? Because we know. Mm-hmm. And uh, we live unto God knowing mm-hmm. that Christ being alive yeah. dieth no more. Mm-hmm. And here we wake up and we're alert, knowing with regard to tribulation, yeah. knowing with regard to the tomb, knowing with regard to the time, 
So a Christian's intelligence, spiritual intelligence with all those. Yeah, that's right. It's not just emotion. No. On the, the source of this knowledge, am I right in taking it that this is not a, a mandate for a subscription to the daily newspaper? <laughs> I would think that would be right, you know. <laughs> Knowing the time, you know, you, you're just aware of how things are. You, you don't need to dredge through the newspaper every day to discover just how desperate things have become. Those of you who are at work, you know, you know. Even in my travels here yesterday, away down the plain, I could hear great hilarity and, and, and so on, and the language. It was awful. I don't know how the people sitting in proximity to it didn't see. You know how it is when you're on a plane on a Friday and there's a hen party going here or a stag party going there and you know when when they're all together it's it's frightful the conversation so i mean even in your interaction with people at your place of work in the street and from general observation you don't need the newspaper to tell you that things are bleak but also knowledge that we that we gain from scripture so it's a a knowledge of God's plan, God's program, and the where, where we slot into that, yeah. and that gives the urgency that he's talking exactly. about. Exactly, yeah. Jack, would you link the word salvation with the rapture? We wait for his son from heaven, mm-hmm. our deliverer from yeah. wrath to come. Yeah. I think what we've been taught over the years about salvation is so appropriate. There are three tenses of salvation. There are a sense in which we have been saved and it is not presumptuous to claim to be saved. It could be that some of your religious friends tell you, oh, you're very presumptuous. You say you're saved. You don't know what you're going to do a year down the line or five years down the line. And yet you say, well, Paul said to Timothy, God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. The verb tense in Ephesians 2, by grace, you have been saved. So it's a fait accompli. You look back to Conversion's Day and you say, I was saved then. And that very moment, you were saved from the penalty of your sin. But you go to the lengths of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and Paul tells us the preaching of the cross is to them that are perishing foolishness, but unto us that are being saved. It's the power of God. So there's a constant, ongoing, daily salvation. Daily, you are emancipated from the power of sin. So there's a present aspect. Our brother has drawn attention to the fact that this has to do with a future aspect of salvation. Now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. And he's linked it with 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, where Jesus is described as our deliverer from the coming wrath. Now, preeminently, not exclusively, but preeminently in the New Testament, wrath is connected with God's judgment on the earth rather than eternal judgment. I'm being guarded. I'm not saying exclusively, but generally. Wrath has to do with God's judgment on the earth. So the wrath to come relates to that period of tribulation that's coming. And we are looking for what, says Philippians 3, a saviour. Paul, why are we going to need a saviour? Because tribulation's coming. And we're going to need salvation. And it's in that sense our salvation is nearer than when we believed. John Heading, if he was saved, and he said, well, 
in what tense? He said, I have been saved, I'm being saved, and I shall be saved. Mm -hmm. As you say, this coming salvation, it shall be a pre-tribulation rapture. That's what I believe too. Salvation is like every other spiritual blessing. It has a future aspect to it. You have been redeemed, but you're waiting for a future aspect of redemption. You're looking for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of the body. That's future. Eternal life is a present possession. He that hath the Son hath life. But then Paul to Titus speaks about in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie has promised. In other words, he's saying, you'll enter into the fullness of eternal life. So spiritual blessings have a present application, but they have a future application as well. John? Is this really moving into a section Christian neighbour to the Christian soldier, Jack. Mm-hmm. Um, is that really the thought with sleep? Um, it's, being, uh, it's being alert, really, yeah. for battle and for the warfare. Yeah. And so the soldier has to look at his watch. Mm-hmm. He has to look at his wardrobe, put on the right uh, armour. Good, so thank you. Yeah. Just on what you said about, and Warren said about the pre-tribulation rapture, wouldn't these verses show that that is the case? Uh, the fact that he says now is our salvation nearer than when we believed mm-hmm. uh, the, the day is at, is at hand and yeah. he wouldn't say that if there were seven years of the most terrible no, trouble no, ever to come across mm-hmm. the earth was still before <coughs> us yeah. now, Brian you were going to come in, I'll let you come in and then I'll, I'll comment on what David had to say there um, the, the things that are, are knowing the time there must have been something that was indicating then the proximity of the Lord's coming Mm-hmm. and if we can still see these things mm-hmm. and increasing and increasing and the two things are the instability of the political world mm-hmm. and the lack of love among saints mm-hmm. and these two things are indicating to us the, the imminence mm-hmm. of the fullness of this salvation yeah. so just to gather up what Brian has said and to go back to what David has said I firmly believe that New Testament scriptures teach the doctrine of imminence the fact that the Lord Jesus could return at any moment. Here's Paul's take on it. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. James, he'll say, the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. John says, little children, it is the last time. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. The writer to the Hebrews, we'll better call him the anonymous writer to the Hebrews. He says that yet a little while, yet a very little while, And he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now, it could be that some of you, dear brethren, don't apply all these to the rapture. We're not going to get into that debate. All I'm saying is the New Testament teaches the doctrine of imminence. And that is why I firmly believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the saints. Our salvation. It's our salvation that we're going to experience then. And he's saying the night is far spent. Would you agree that there's more, while certainly the salvation here includes, as we've been thinking, our deliverance from the tribulation that's coming, it would embrace far more than that as well, wouldn't it? Because simply the the fact that we're very soon going to be taken out of this world would not necessarily motivate the the change in behaviour in the verses that follow. 
but the fact that we're going to see Christ, we're going to be with Christ, we're going to be like Christ, our service will be reviewed by Christ, all these things that are going to happen uh, when he comes and when we receive our salvation, these are the things that will have an impact if we grasp them on our life in the way that's outlined in these verses. So you're saying the rapture and subsequent events that will be for our benefit, that's what he has in mind by our salvation. I thought, I thought the salvation was the, 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 everything that we receive at the rapture. rapture. Good. Now, some may have thought what Paul's saying here is in contradiction of what the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, he said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. So in John 9, the Lord Jesus is saying, it's daytime and the night's coming. Here in Romans 13, Paul is saying, it's nighttime and the day is coming. Contradiction? No, it's just one of these situations where you must interpret in context. And the Lord was saying, look, as far as opportunities in service are concerned, it's a daytime. He regarded himself as being in the day of opportunity in service and the sun would set on his day of service. The night cometh when no man can work. And thus it is for you and me. You have a limited time in which to serve God. The daytime. In Nehemiah, they went from the rising of the morning till the stars appeared. Now, for any one of us, the stars could appear at any moment. And our day of service would be over. The night would come. But here, it's a nighttime scene. We are in a scene of dense moral and spiritual darkness. But we love to sing. We wait to see the morning star appearing in glory bright. This blessed hope illumines with beams most cheering the hours of night. The night cometh. Uh, the day is at hand, brother. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. So we really have to dress, dress up for the dawn that will soon be here. Yeah. We, we take our This whole concept of putting on and putting off is quite a pervasive thing in the writings mm-hmm. of the Apostle, in the New Testament in fact. And put off and put on, like Ephesians, Colossians, as mm-hmm. you know, that's conversion. Exactly. Then put off corruption and put on incorruption. Mm-hmm. That's the Lord's coming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then here in between. Yeah. So he uses put on, put off, the clothing metaphor mm-hmm. for each stage of Christian yeah. experience. Maybe just let me elaborate one thing you said so that people get it, just young believers. At conversion, you put off the old man. And you put on the new man. It's not an imper- it may appear in the Ephesian passage to be an imperative. Put off the old man. Put on the new man. But in reality, he's saying that's what you did. And it's crystal clear in the Colossians passage at conversion you put off the old man, you put on the new man, but there are certain other items that we have to divest ourselves of. Roy? I was thinking here as we, that we have in First Thessalonians <coughs> chapter 5, Jack, verse 8 and 9, But mm-hmm. well, let us hear of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For... Mm-hmm. God have not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. So in light, in light of the fact that we are not appointed to wrath, and that Jesus died for us in that context, to give us a place in the rapture, that is important, brethren. It used to be taught that some people would go at the rapture and others would be left, depending on your faithfulness. 
If you were among those who were looking for his appearing, you would go. If you weren't, you would be left to face the tribulation. Oh, you saved all right, but left partial rapture, they called it. It is not taught in the word of God. The passage that Roy has alluded to in 1 Thessalonians 5, God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, and wait for it, who died for us. And like every other spiritual blessing, our place in the rapture is founded on the fact that he died for us. That whether we watch or sleep, we should live together with him. So the armor armor of light here and the armor of righteousness in another passage and the armor of God, uh, all the same but different. Different aspects, yeah. Yeah. So, So here... Armor of armor of light in connection with the flesh. Huh? Armor of righteousness in connection with the world. Second Corinthians six. Armor of God. Ephesians six in connection with the, with the devil. devil. Good. So Very good. Fit for the conflict yeah. of every foe. And the fact that it's armor of light here is in keeping with the fact he's been speaking that we are in a scene of darkness. So let us walk honestly in the day, decently. Is that word honestly or honourably? As in the day. Uh, And now he tells us what's involved in that. Not in chambering or wantonness. Sorry, not in rioting and drunkenness. It's interesting that in the list of this most heinous of sins, they're embedded this thought of drunkenness. You see, strong drink, it breaks down your reserves of resolve your inhibitions melt away whenever there's alcohol in the bloodstream and so if there's alcohol in the bloodstream you could be guilty of rioting or chambering wantonness and then strife and envy you know it would it would get you in a belligerent frame of mind at times so you might think a lot of these things don't apply. All I'm saying is just be guarded about the drink situation because it could lead to all of these others. As in the day. What exactly does that mean? Is it, am I dressing for the dawn, as our brother David has, has said? Should I be dressing and putting this on as if I were in the daylight? Or I, I thought that was the, you know, because we're children of the light, as First uh, Thessalonians 5 spoke of, because we're children of the light, because we are in the day, then we should wear uh, attire that's suited to that. You know, all around us is dark, but there is this connected to us that is, is light, we were once darkness, now are we light in the Lord. And I, I thought that in the day, as far as our environment is concerned, we should have all this attire. This is the thought. Sorry. Well, sorry. I just wanted to add the one word. So it's actually character. The character of the coming day is stamped it here now. So that's what I was going to say. Yeah, good. Thank you. Now, we've in fact, got in fact some, yeah. some of the older ones, I'm not sure how it can be authenticated, that when a soldier, maybe a soldier lounging about or came to daytime, put on his armour, and quite a number of bits of his armour would be stamped with uh, some name or motif of Caesar. Mm-hmm. The eagle on his helmet and maybe the coat of arms. So when you saw the armour on, you immediately thought about Caesar. 
Right. So that's the last verse. Put you on the Lord, Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ. Christ. Very good. Very good. Uh, okay, brother. Just it's six statements he makes about man, but the seventh man is put. Seventh statement is put on Christ, completion in Christ. But in verse number eight, there are two different words for another. One you have for the neighbor, one another. But then the other word for another isn't quite clear. Obviously, you love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. But what about love to the one who loved us? And I feel like this final portion, these last few verses on Christ, are us giving, are us loving the Lord. That's our exercise of love towards Him. And love towards Him will be will be evidenced in us reflecting His character, and we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a little verse in the Psalms which I think we should be praying every day, brethren. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. It's wonderful when we can reflect something of the character and the attributes of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever I read this, I think of the burnt offering. Our brethren tell us often that the burnt offering was all for God. Now, I know exactly what they mean when they say that. It was all for God. So I'm not, I'm not criticizing the statement. But there's just one little proviso. As you read through Leviticus, you discover that the skin of the burnt offering became the property of the priest. And you might say, well, what, what would he do with it? Well, what happened to the skin in Genesis chapter 4? Or Genesis chapter 3? The skin of the offering became the covering, the clothing of Adam and Eve. So if a priest now is the, has this in his property, the skin of the burnt offering, he can make a beautiful coat of that. <laughs> and you could have looked at them all walking around. And the majesty, the beauty of a bullock that was without blemish would be seen on them. And when you think of the Lord Jesus and you read of him in the Gospels, the delightful characteristics that marked him. You can put on the skin of the burnt offering. You can put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the negative, And make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. It is three o'clock. I think I can hear stomachs beginning to rumble. So we'll better think. But let me say this. Let me say this to you. Young person... You could make provision for the flesh by the novels you read, by the magazines you buy, by the websites you visit, by the movies you download. Make not provision for the flesh. By contrast, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, allow me to thank my dear brethren on the platform with me for their able assistance today and so many of you dear brethren who were helpful I really appreciated it Uh, so many of you have been able to help us one way or another and we do value your support in this way Father we come to thee again in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ we're so thankful that we've been able to read from inspired scripture again today and there are so many of these issues that are practical We pray thee, our Father, that grace may be given to us just to implement them in our lives. We ask of thee that thou would encourage us in the right ways of the Lord. We do know that we live in a dark environment, and yet, our Father, we can be blameless and harmless, the children of God without rebuke, 
in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom we shine as lights in the world. So give help for this, we do pray thee. Grant our God that our testimony might reflect well in the neighbourhood, and we pray, our God, that we might never fall foul of the law in any way. Help us to be honourable citizens. So we commend ourselves to thee for this. We're thankful again for the assembly here that has called us together in conference. We thank thee for all the work that my people have put in to providing for us as far as our physical needs are concerned. And now as we come to this time of refreshment, we just offer our thanks and we praise thee as the one who is the giver of every good and perfect gift. We commend ourselves to thee then for the latter part of the day and offer our thanksgivings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise the Lord and leave tomorrow.